0: Hi, this is Steve Poor, and you're listening to Pioneers and Pathfinders. After three decades of working at the intersection of law and business, today's guest almost needs no introduction, but I'll do it anyway. Susan Hackett is currently the CEO of Legal Executive Leadership, LLC. Before that, she spent 20 years as Senior Vice President and General Counsel of the ACC. While at the ACC, she presided over the creation of the Value Challenge to recognize the in-house teams and outside counsel who are driving value in legal spending, in addition to strategic initiatives and legal operations, pro bono, and diversity. I've known Susan for 15 years and count her among the many friends I've made along my own journey. Listen in for how this self-described extrovert stays stimulated and energetic and hear insights from her many years of navigating the unique mindset of lawyers. For those of you interested in following her on Twitter, you can find her at Hackett in-house.
1: So how are you? I haven't seen you for far too long.
0: It's been forever. How, I'm good. How about yourself? I'm
1: great. Thank you. It's been how, such a wacky year that it seems, you know, great being like a, you know, do I need vitamin D supplements? Yes. Yes. Um, <laughs> <laughs> no, no, I, was,
0: I was thinking about you because I, I know how much you enjoy sort of meeting people and interacting, the personal interaction. How are you coping with the lack of that in this pandemic? You know, or,
1: I, I have to say that was a question that was much more relevant for me when I left ACC. Because in 2011, it seems like it's now 10 years, um, I had been at the intersection of so many people and so much travel, and I was going everywhere and talking with everyone about everything imaginable, and the withdrawal for me was in that year, and I started implementing over the course of the next couple of years, some tactics that have stood me in good stead as I continue working by remote because I've been working from home in my office now for this long so you know uh-huh. you, you are absolutely correct that I take energy from interaction with other people that I'm one of those people who tends to to suck in that vibe and, and and respond to it and it's hard for me to stay as focused or as energetic when I feel like I'm locked in a room and not able to talk. So some of those tactics were making sure I was going out for a walk on a regular basis just to get out of the space, which, again, don't underestimate what well, you can't. Now you're in the same boat if you've been working from home. How much just changing your, your physical environment a couple of times a day can do to reset your mind a little bit. I made sure I started talking with people more regularly just because because I had those kinds of interactions when you go down to the kitchen and get a glass of water from the bubbler or, you know, whatever it was that, that you did that were just kind of the engagements that, that made the day pleasant. And then I started introducing different kinds of ways to keep in touch with people who I'd fallen out of touch with or keep in touch with the ideas that were important to me by joining groups or following conversations that were, that were difficult. And I'm not saying I was perfect at it and then I had it all lined out, but it was very mindful. You had to actually make sure you were doing it because it wasn't part of my natural workflow from the 20 some years of being in a workplace where all of that just kind of happened organically with the job.
0: It does require a certain amount of discipline, doesn't it?
1: Yeah. And and for me, that discipline was easier to implement in a, in, in because it's about the things that I love to do. What I know I would have had a harder time doing are the things that I always procrastinate doing that have to do with work if I didn't have that energy up, right? right. You, can, you can just get to a point where you, you slump personally, emotionally, and professionally.
0: <laughs> I see it happening. All, it happens all the time. That's right.
1: Yeah, and I don't think it's necessarily just depression. I just think it's muscles that you aren't using that you well, were used to using normally in the workplace, right?
0: Yeah, that happened uh just spontaneously or, or uh, organically, I guess. Yeah. That that don't happen organically.
1: Exactly. anymore. Exactly. Just you know the the simple task for me of getting on the train every morning to take metro into downtown and seeing a lot of people's faces and feeling you know part of something that was moving and all that you know if 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 the if the slug trail that I leave going to the coffee <laughs> in the morning <laughs> is, is all you got. <laughs> you really, you really do kind of miss the things that that you weren't thinking about as stimulants, but they are, especially for people who are extroverts. And I and I realize I can't therefore speak to how happy many introverts are in this. Pandemic. <laughs> <laughs> that all of us have stopped bombarding them with all of these things that are important for us to do in order for us to, to focus and take energy. But, I, you know, I, I I guess one of the things that has been one of the standards for me of this last year was my excitement over things like Zoom, where not only did I get to interact with people, but I got to see their faces and I got to feel like it was a, a more personal connection I'd have my friends and colleagues all this year saying, oh, another Zoom call. I can't stand it. And I'd be like, yay, another Zoom call. This is, <laughs> this is terrific. I get to see people again. And for me, it was just the opposite. I, I, I get what they're saying. I know they can drain you. And I do think there is an equation that for every one hour of time invested in a Zoom call, you probably exert three hours of energy erg (laughs) that's right it is it is more tiring but it's critical to be able to keep in touch with people in a more um connected way than than email and texting and all that kind of stuff allows
0: yeah and are you finding because you're doing this so consciously are you finding that you're able to connect with some people a little bit better
1: yeah, than you or otherwise I'm would have sure. it because it's because it's a
0: virtual yeah. world.
1: Yeah. And so where I would normally be in a position or in a role previously where I was leading groups, I joined more groups in the last year because other folks were starting to create them. The, 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 the onus was off of me to be the originator of all of those things because everybody was moving into the environment that I had spent the last nine years working in, which is that remote work. Right. I don't have the the office and all those natural things that happen when you're out in groups of people or when you're in the the kind of position where you are literally a jack of all trades you're working across so many different topics and issues at a time that it gave you that mental stimulation. And when you you know when you get into your office and you realize it's just the piece of work in front of you that you have to get done today and and while you've always said I wish I had Time to focus on this. Now you've got it. <laughs> There's no excuse, <laughs> Alice. The original careful what you wish for. <laughs> yeah. So all that's been all that's what? been good. But I, I think the one real difference for me was that suddenly people were calling me and saying, How have you done this? Because I need to start doing this myself. And I was I was now a, a more of a veteran. Doesn't mean I'm necessarily good at it but I've gone through some of the thinking and had some ideas for the, 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 the things that I might do to, to, to self. Them. Can I say self-stimulate on a podcast or will that get us? Oh, we can, we can,
0: we'll, I don't know. We'll let the editors figure that one out. Susan.
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, I'll tell you, that's what it is. It's a way to be stimulated. Yes.
0: Yeah, I think that's right. And, and it's an interesting point you're making because, a piece of your practice has to be to have become almost sort of a counselor piece to, because I, I, you know, I have a number of uh, less senior lawyers at the firm that I sort of mentor or sponsor. And they talk about, we talk about this specific issue and the need to show empathy and the need to move out of the strict bounds of business with your, with your clients and your contacts and your friends yeah. To share ideas and to share thoughts about how you cope and how you adjust this new world. So I'm, I'm not surprised people are leaning on you for that kind of advice.
1: Well, and it's been interesting because it is more of a coaching kind of a role in that sense. But I, I, I will say that a lot of people have talked about um, this, this, this environment creating um, what was at least for them close to feeling like depression. And I am in no, no way a professional who can give any kind of advice on that. But I will say that I find that a lot of people who are assuming this is about depression may not actually find that it's about depression in that clinical sense, but more about disconnection. And so if, there's, if there are things that can be explored that provide this, and this is this has been particularly important, as you say, for some of the people who are near to practice, not only in the FOMO, the fear of missing out, you know, I mean, they are at that stage in their professional development where so much of their development is no longer about did you read the article or do you understand some of the, the regs and the, 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 the expertise involved, but about who do you know and who are you talking with and how are you developing judgment and what is your experiential basis? And they aren't getting that in an environment where they're still coming up. And so much of that came at the elbow of someone in person,
0: right? in an That's office
1: it. type environment or in a courtroom if you're a litigator or wherever that might be. And part of what I think we have as an advantage as Shall I say, mature practitioners, Steve?
0: You, you <laughs> can't. I think it certainly fits for me, Susan.
1: Mature. <laughs> well, the the gray the gray is hopefully not visible if we're only going to be unaudible. But, <laughs> but 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 mature practitioners have already developed many of those networks. Know who it is they should be in contact with, or who it is they might contact. Don't feel as as much of a disincentive or a compunction about dialing someone up who they may or may not know very well and saying, Hey, you know, I was working on this thing and I was recommended to you for for a second or third year lawyer. That's a traumatic conversation.
0: They almost It's 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 hard enough to do it in person.
1: (laughs) (laughs) The worst thing that happens is I don't get them to pick up the phone or they cut me off and say, I don't have time for this. And I got to tell you, while they may not pick up the phone the first time, no one ever says, I don't have time to talk to you about this.
0: No, that's right. That's right. So,
1: so getting people the ideas of where they could find folks and making connections. I have a standard email format that I look at that says in the subject line, if it was you calling me to say, gee, Susan, I'm looking for some way I can keep up with what's going on in, uh, I don't know, whatever the topic, professional regulation. And I know someone who does that. My standard subject line in the email is Steve meet Sandy, Sandy, meet Steve. And then in the email, I say, dear Sandy and Steve, you are two people who really should know each other. And I'm call, you know, I'm ready to introduce you because Steve is working on this and Sandy knows that. And you're like chocolate and peanut butter, you know, you're great apart, but you're perfect together. So you guys should really, you know, talk on offline and, and, and maybe you can give my good friend Steve a hand Sandy And and that's that, that email always works.
0: It's amazing, isn't it?
1: Well, it's also sad because this is this is what a profession actually is. It's not a a series of regulatory codes. It's not what's in your law school course books. It's not what's in the the brief you learn to draft or the first memos you write or the time spent in the library or the, the transactions that you start to work on. It's about people. Collegially sharing the same practice and interest and and faith in in the profession and in our system, if you will, and, and being willing to not only help each other, but to look at the way they work as an all boats rise conversation at all times. We can talk about competition between lawyers and law firms, and we can talk about dysfunctional relationships between inside and outside counsel, and we can talk about all the things that are wrong, and I'm sure we will because there's time left in the podcast. But part <laughs> of our conversation should start with the, hey, we're all hanging in this together. You know, this if we don't have a profession that's based on collegiality and, and, and that we are all part of an, an association... Of like-minded people who believe in doing the right things, then we might as well give it up. That's the that's the best part of what we do.
0: No, I think that's right. And you know, I I I come at it, I get asked a lot of questions about the impact of technology in in the profession. Yeah. And the the point I make is the one you're making, which is you're looking at it the wrong way. Because there's the, what's important about being in the profession is the human dynamics, the empathy, the collegiality, the interpersonal connections. Computers are not going to replace that. Certainly not in my lifetime, and not a lifetime of anybody practicing now. And those are the skills you ought to work on and develop. Right. Technology is just a tool to how you accomplish tasks more efficiently and more effectively. Well, and
1: that's the point. It's, it's the way that you make more space and time for you to engage in exactly that. If you're spending your whole day doing repetitive functions that could be done otherwise, whether it's by other people or whether it's by an automated system or whether it's by delegating it to someone who is more appropriately trained to that task and your higher level responsibility, your higher level value or purpose is that interaction, that ability to talk with a client or a colleague, get to the root of a problem, figure out what your expertise and your intelligence and your judgment tells you, and then move on to helping someone find a solution. That's what technology frees you to do. It doesn't prevent you from doing it. What's preventing you from doing it is all the work you're doing that could have been given over to technology. (laughs) That's that's
0: exactly right. and It's highest
1: and best use, right? Yeah. And are
0: are you seeing firms or uh, in-house departments or law firms or law schools training people in those skills because I see so many people coming through lawyers coming through where that's a what you've just described scares them yeah it's and, and they it just they want to stay in their bubble of how they've done work all the time because moving to this higher level human connection is hard and I don't I've never figured out if it's a training issue if it's a selection issue of who goes in to become a lawyer or or why that's so difficult for some people. But some people find it very hard to do.
1: Yeah, I I think there's a whole lot of factors involved. And there may be different answers for different people. But what I'd suggest to you after spending a lot of time this year and then previous years, for instance, teaching law school classes. And I don't know if you ever have the privilege of doing that. But anybody, anybody who gets a chance to do that really should because those kids are terrifying. It's it's really interesting,
0: isn't it? Yeah.
1: (laughs) I I can stand in front of a group of managing partners of the AMLAW 50, or I can stand in front of a group of CLOs of the Fortune 100, and I am far more confident of what I'm doing than when I'm standing in front of a class of law students, whether it's virtual or real time, and they say, But why do they do that? Um, or or other or other similar questions that are just like impossible to answer because they're right you we know we're we're so crazy the way we we deliver our services most of the time they they will they will erase any doubt in your mind about whether or not that group of people when I call them kids that's not fair there are there are also mature students who are involved people who are entering the practice is what we should be talking about they are excited about this. They, they may not know how. They certainly aren't getting the training in most law schools. The classes that are out there in those few law schools that are starting to open their curriculum to include them are like only for one term, you know, once a week or twice a week classes. Right. They, they aren't part of the ABA accredited law school curriculum, which sucks up like 95% of the class time that a student has in at least US law schools over the three years they're in school. And so they aren't getting that kind of track. Maybe they get some during their summers when they go off and have a work experience someplace. But then you're, you're now relying on the law firms and legal departments that are uh, admittedly places that are struggling themselves to figure out how to use technology And more importantly, things like data that is driven by the technology in order to understand what their use and their role and their best purpose and practice might be if something else or someone else can do this work. So they're clearly excited about it. But you're right, folks who are the mature lawyers in the profession, and by that I mean anybody who's already in an environment where there's a system surrounding them, whether it's the law firm or whether it's the legal department or whether you're a government attorney or in the judiciary, and you've got all of these institutions that have been built over the course of decades, if not in some cases, centuries, you know, and and how we feel about how we do our work. And we look at technology as the way that we might be able to get a couple of tasks done. We're still kind of hesitant. We're constantly looking at the lowest things that it can do. And we're terrified of bringing it in to really not only assist but to to reinvigorate or reinvent the higher level things we do, I don't think it will ever replace lawyers, and it's not because it's not capable. It's because what we offer is about that kind of relationship. It's about trust. It's about applying judgment and experience to situations. You know, that will go into uh, the mix with things like data analytics and things like technology that can automate process. But that doesn't replace us. It makes us more valuable if only we get ourselves to the point where we can stop doing the work that's not so valuable.
0: Well, I think, that, I think that's right. I mean, technology can augment the power of people. It's not yeah. going to replace it. And I saw a quote somewhere, and I, I can't remember who to attribute this to, but the quote was something like what you just said which is if you think technology is going to replace lawyers, you don't understand what lawyers do. Right. And, and it's the point. And that, that goes for lawyers point. as
1: well. You know, it not does indeed. What lawyers should be doing maybe is the way to say it. Because- what they should be doing. We look at what clients need. If you do any kind of a needs assessment with, for instance, a corporate client, I'm, I'm more in the corporate realm than I am in other kinds of legal representation realms. But if you look at a needs assessment of what clients need, they need problems solved. And those problems are inevitably business problems. And you know that my favorite saying is that clients don't have legal problems. They have business problems, right? I, I mean do know that. So when you go into that environment and you talk with them about what they want, they want people who are thinking at the highest level. They want people who understand not only the fact that their business is becoming digital, for instance, but that the, the method by which they perform their work in the company is increasingly digital. And here are these people in the legal department with red wells and pads of paper and pens trying to figure out how to avoid technology or only use it for tasks that were you know, automated 30 years ago in every right. other business environment. And we're still trying, we're still calling it innovation to figure out how to use a database in legal practice. I mean, uh, come Yes, on. we are. That, we that's are. not innovation. People talk about what we're looking at with the, the, the changes that are going on in the profession and what's coming for the future. And it's not about stuff that had to do with innovation. We're not, We're not inventing technology. That's not our role. Our role is how to figure out how to better harness it so we can spend more time solving client problems doing what we do, which is really smart thinking and advising and trusted counseling. That's right. So, when you get,
0: let's go back to the law students for just one minute, one minute for all we're talking about. Uh, Because I get this question whenever I do law school classes where I'm talking about technology or process management or all the all the similar kind of things that you talk about and the question i get is okay this is all cool we like it we're excited we're going to go work for an in-house legal department or a law firm and we're going into that system you just described that institution we just described and we're coming in at the lower rung yeah what do we do
1: yeah yeah and that's that's such a hard um, well, you know, my answer is that they need to think carefully about where they're going and what their their goals are, because if they're looking at a firm or at a, any kind of a workplace where they are going in um, with expectations that they'll have the chance to deploy these kinds of, of systems and to explore them and to become more expert in using them, but they're talking to a firm that really doesn't do any of that then they they may wish to rethink. And that doesn't mean that they shouldn't go into legal practice, but it may mean that they wish to add other kinds of potential employers to their prospectus like law companies or legal tech companies. I think the big concern for most law school students that I talk to is their concern that they won't be able to learn the law first as their grounding unless they go to a law firm and that they will therefore never get a job as a more, um, with more traditional lawyering opportunities if they haven't had those first, second, third, fourth, fifth year experiences where someone's trained them in this highly legal environment. Do you um, think that's I'm true? I'm not sure that's going to be the practice model for the future, but they're correct in saying for the present that that's going to be hard, right?
0: Yeah, because I law think that's law that's, right.
1: teach, that's, not their, that's not their role.
0: No. They've got all kinds of issues in terms of budgets and time, and law departments are constrained. It's not realistic. Well, but
1: here, here, are the, here are the keys, though, with this, is that I, I think there are fewer and fewer law firms that are teaching now, too. It used to be the standard that partners at a certain level spent a significant amount of their time and made their investment in the firm in helping to make sure they were shaping the next generation of partners, and that means associates, right? That mm-hmm. means people coming yes. up the ladder. And now as the business model is, is 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 exercised, you see more and more firms in which senior partners are busy all day building for themselves. They're not interested in sharing their work. They're not interested in sharing their time. A lot of firms that had very traditional training systems have kind of given them up. They may still have them for the summer associate rotation, you know, uh, cruise, uh, that they that they do where, you know, the students come in and they spend time rotating from department to department and they're being courted and they're being uh, given an, a demonstration of what the firm looks like. But when they get there, there isn't necessarily as much of a institutionalized and structured training program in any practice group or firm wide. And it's kind of sink or swim if you happen to make a connection and and work well with a group of people in a practice and they take you under their wing, then good for you. But if you don't, you're going to be you know one or two or three years and done because you're just never going to get sticky in that environment and you aren't going to learn the kinds of things that make you the attractive associate that everyone wants to send work to.
0: How do we deal with that dynamic, Susan?
1: I don't know. I think this is one of the big conundrums right now is that no one is – naturally offering the kind of training that, that should be the first couple of years in practice. And you know there are a couple of things to say about that. Is that the fault of the law school? Or is that the fault of the first employer? Is that the fault of the corporate legal department that doesn't want to pay to train entry-level lawyers? Or the fault of the law firm that wants to charge $400 an hour for someone who still doesn't know how to practice? You know, Is that the fault of, of the, the way we have set up an educational system to focus on learning to think like a lawyer, but not learning how to practice like one until you're several years into practice? Whatever the answers are to all of those questions is irrelevant to the kid who is now coming out of law school, deeply in debt in many cases, having in front of them what should be a very bright career in a, in a profession that needs them and not knowing where they're going to get either legal training or the kind of practice training that will introduce them to things like the ability to start to use data and technology or process and project management or collaborative tools or to better communicate or to figure out how to engage in uh, managed portfolio service delivery or working with other disciplines, whatever you want to say, none of that seems to be out there except in those rarefied air firms where they are still able to afford to raise young lawyers up for a couple of years in practice and still they, until they can start standing up their own billable schedule. Um, and I, I frankly think that we really need to reinvent the law school model. But even if we agreed we were going to do that today and we were going to blow the whole box up, It would be years before we were able to get that institutionalized into a school system and get, you know, students three years out and into practice. It's a a long-term need, but it is not a short-term solution to simply say we need to change law school. Um, It's going to take time before that happens. So I think it does come back to firms in a practical manner, but I do see a lot of the law companies picking up some of the slack. And a lot of what I talk with students about in answering that question that you asked a couple of minutes ago about, so what do you tell them? I tell them to take a look at expanding their career um, conversations to include the law companies. And I don't just mean like big four giant companies. I mean, legal tech companies. There are all kinds of, of companies that are doing staffing work that actually provide in some ways more significant training. It may be training to certain tasks, but it but it is training that allows you to say, I have experience and expertise. I encourage them to ask questions of firms that may start driving this conversation up the pipeline and into firms. If firms are seeing that their best recruits don't want to come to them, because just like they're concerned about things like pro bono and diversity and other kinds of topics that they're now increasingly asking questions about. Maybe they should also be asking questions about how is your firm adapting to a new practice environment and adopting new practice models that will allow me to not only prepare myself to serve our clients today, but prepare me to be able to serve our clients in five years or 50 years
0: you know it's an interesting you you referred to it as a conundrum and it, it that's a perfect word for it because i've wondered about the ability to drive change in the profession from the new entrants and the people coming into the business who are, mm-hmm. it, who are who are who are perhaps more flexible in their thinking and more able to adapt and the able at the beginning to demand a certain environment but that mm-hmm. requires Attracting those people to the profession at the beginning and having a law school environment that enhances that attitude and that approach. Uh, I'm not sure which comes first.
1: And, you know, it may also require lawyers in practice to start rethinking how they mentor those who are entering. Because if the only way that you actually take a, a new lawyer under your wing is if you're forced to, within the, 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 the system that your firm or your legal department has said that you're gonna be assigned to, to to Kendra and you need to make sure that Kendra succeeds and that is part of how you are evaluated, right? That's not such a bad thing to have that kind of requirement potentially, But it but most of what we've done in these kinds of environments is voluntary. And some of the most valuable conversations I've ever heard for newer lawyers are from senior level people when they're talking about how when they went into practice and they got linked up with people in their firm, for instance, who actively not only took an interest in them, but were willing to give them critical analysis, even take them out to the woodshed and say, this was horrible. You did not do what it was I had asked you to do. We need to rethink this. Next time I want you to come in, I want you to ask these kinds of questions. You know, you need to do this. But people, when they, when they don't do that, you don't learn this, this job. It, it is the best way to learn, isn't it? Saying, I, don't, I don't want to get into that. It's very uncomfortable to have to be that person. And too many senior lawyers now are simply saying, you know, Kendra doesn't do, she did that first project and it wasn't good. I'm done with Kendra. As opposed to saying, how can I make sure? Kendra comes back with the next one and rocks it, you know, knocks it right out of the park because we now know what she did wrong. I'm instructing her on how she should do it differently. She's not going to be afraid to come in and say, this is what I've done. I think my next step is this. And then I'd say yes, or no, but, or what, you know, whatever. But we've gotten out of that mode. We're all just too damn busy. Bill the hour, right? to to spend the time necessary, because it's time consuming. To, To explain to someone, you've heard lawyers say it, it would just be faster if I did it myself.
0: Yeah, it's not just time consuming, but it's emotionally taxing as well. Because to give honest, quality feedback, as you've described it, sometimes is giving hard messages. Yeah. And people want to avoid giving hard messages. They want to avoid the hard conversation. And we don't train people up to how to have those hard conversations. Right. so and, they are all
1: much more worried about, you know, folks in the senior levels and senior ranks in firms and in departments being seen as a hard ass, right? Because it can, right. it can create an environment where, you know, there's a difference between taking someone and saying, let me tell you what went wrong here, speaking in a normal tone of voice, not yelling, not using, you know, not making an, an abusive conversation, but a conversation that is clear, crystal clear that this was not what you should be doing as opposed to, I'm going to send this back with some red marks and thinking I'm simply going to go back and tell the person who's coordinating the associates that I don't want to work with her anymore. Right. Um, And so I I guess one of the things that has really become clear to me as a, as an alternative that the U S system has never really run on this, on this method is I've got a, a niece who is, living overseas. And so she's going to law school now. But remember, for the rest of the world, that means she's in her undergraduate institution. Law school where she's going to school in Scotland is not a a three-year graduate school. It's your four-year degree in college. And I'm not suggesting that there isn't a point to having law school be a graduate level course What I'm suggesting is that there is an expectation that when she graduates with her four-year degree that she will do something that is the equivalent of articling for a couple of years. Where it is natural in the courts okay. of her articling to not only receive a lot of critical attention to your work and a lot of training, but to assume you're not being built at that level. To assume that there is you're not supposed to walk in on your first day magically transformed from the date of your graduation from law school into a fully functioning, practicing lawyer who knows all the ropes. You know, there's yeah, no practice yeah. Needed
0: yeah you know i've all I've often wondered, and I know the economics of the law school business don't allow for it, but whether that third year of law school is better spent as sort of a two year trainee program as you're mm-hmm. describing it over in yeah. Scotland or or England where you're not paying the full freight for a year of law school, you're not getting paid at a full lawyer either right but you're but you're learning the trade
1: and that's the assumption all the way around as opposed to this. I have to be fully operational as a as a fully formed lawyer sprung from the brow of a law school and and that's just that's just nuts the canadians do articling the australians do pretty much every common law jurisdiction in the world except us does that and most of of europe does it I, i i'm not suggesting they're right but when i spoke gosh it must be at least 15 years ago to a one of the uh, annual conferences of the American Association of Law Schools. And this was back when we were all kind of starting this conversation about what the future of legal practice would look like and the value movement and all that kind of stuff. And I made a, a rather radical proposal that I actually called Blowing Up the Box and did a presentation that was a keynote presentation about how law school, if we were without any... I said, look, I'm not in any way judging what goes on now or whether it's right or wrong. But if we all walked into this room and there was no such thing as law school, knowing what we know now about what works and what we need and what's happening in the profession, how would we build law school to generate the kind of academic experience and preparation to practice that would be potentially more connected to what it is that students who are going out into the world as lawyers are going to be experiencing. And I made a proposal that said your first year would be the kinds of things that the ABA accredited schools are supposed to do that are the the required courses. And your second year would be spent collaborating with other students in doing projects that were around solving client problems, not reading case law, right? But that were about how you because so much of what it is that lawyers do, at least in corporate practice now, is not about litigation per se. It's more about advising and counseling and compliance and and negotiation and pre-litigation. How do we not go to how many cases actually go to court? I mean, like this many, right? Very, very few. Your your goal is, right. you know, a settlement before you, you know, you you, you get to that stage. So the second year would be spent solving problems and such with other students. And then the third year would be spent with kids out on assignment in a variety of different kinds of workplaces where they would be required to take that practical training that interested them in that second year, what kinds of things they like to do, and practice it for a while someplace and be graded on it, get feedback on it, still in a school environment. And the the audience... (laughs) How'd that go over there, Susan? It was a rather chilly reception. I can imagine. (laughs) (laughs) You
0: know, and I, <laughs> they loved that, didn't they? Yeah, don't do business the way you're doing it, doing yeah, it differently. I
1: was, you know, I was hoping that I'd at least see a couple of eyes get a little bit teary and maybe some people lean forward, but there was an awful lot of them crossing my arms over my chest and leaning back in my chair. You know, Because what we really have is a, an environment where the academic community is tenured in teaching what it is they know. And you can't say to the guy who's been teaching evidence- the last 25 years, I'd like you to teach legal tech this month. Um, no, you cannot. And, and and there's there's that level on the talent issue, but there's also the question about what it is that we have so deeply invested in that we believe is important about being a lawyer and therefore what it is that we put into the law school curriculum. And I think there's a shift in what we think is important, but there's not a shift in the law school.
0: No, they're very, they're very change resistant. But that, that uh, chilly reception, you know, you, you've been in front of this change movement for a long time. Yeah. It's not the first time you've had that chilly <laughs> reception. Let's be <laughs> honest. Well, I had
1: take it personally in about 2006 or seven, when we first started, you know, chatting about the concepts. And then when we rolled out the challenge in 2008 or nine at ACC, I'm talking about the ACC value challenge. Right. You know, they they're, they, well, and I got to say, the, the, the reception is still chilly. It's just a lot more modulated now. Um, it is getting better. There are more and more people who recognize the need. So now the chilliness is, you're asking me to do what? As opposed to, that doesn't make any sense, right? I, mean, right. I think everybody gets the value proposition now. I think everybody understands what it is that's changing and what they need to do. Now we're in the behavior change part of it. Which is really difficult because what you're saying to people is that what you've done very successfully for the last however long you've done it, five years, 25 years, 40 years, and that's earned you a great living and brought you all kinds of professional satisfaction and fame isn't really what you might be doing in the future. We don't really know exactly what you might be doing in the future. And let's go on an exploratory mission to figure that out. And people kind of look at you and go.
0: I don't think so. I don't think Come so. On. That's not going to happen. I was <laughs> interested in your reaction. Uh, there's, there was the Bloomberg article. I think you tweeted it uh, back in December or retweeted it. And it talked about, it gave some numbers around the tools and techniques that it was a combination of law departments and law firms. I don't know the precise number in the mixture. Yeah. And 44% there their main tool for driving efficiency in the way was only technology. Yeah. Uh, and 44, 44% uh, used project management. 5% did Lean Six Sigma and 15% were using design thinking or agile prop- processes. And I'm struck by those numbers. I don't, you and I have been doing this for a, for a long time, you
1: can see the dent in her forehead from banging it against that wall. Yeah.
0: <laughs> oh no! On the one hand, the glass half full part of it says, "Well, they're asking the question. Yeah, oh, There's, we're making progress. We're making progress. Yeah, but okay. geez, it's 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 it is the banging your head against the wall piece.
1: Yeah. Is but that your reaction? But it is working. I, I I get all the time the gee. This has been a conversation that you've been engaged in now for coming on twenty years. Um, You know, 15 years full time, at least, you know, aren't you disappointed? What is it that's gone wrong? How is how is it that this is not moving faster? And I look at people and I go, did you think this was going to happen in two months? Right. I mean, I am very deeply concerned about whether change in the legal profession will happen fast enough for us to outpace irrelevance. Right. I am concerned about that. But that doesn't mean that I don't think there's been progress, and that doesn't mean that I don't think that progress is accelerating. It is accelerating. But like any major change, especially to an institution that is so deeply rooted, so firmly entrenched, so captive to the people who are currently in the, the process of delivering it, traditionally, at least, you know, the, the idea that this would happen in a couple of months or a couple of years is not only unrealistic, it's just not, it's just not scientifically the way change happens. I mean, so right. what you've seen is the, the the stages where people had to be introduced to the issue. It's, we can have a seven-step program for this, can't we, right? You know, we can, yes. anger and, you know, <laughs> you know like, oh. <laughs> <laughs> You'll get to
0: acceptance at some point.
1: Exactly. <laughs> I, you know, I'm, I'm sort of in my forgiveness stage right now, but <laughs> you know, I, I think that a lot of people are now seeing that there is a lot of effort, there are a lot of options, there are success practices, there is a lot of conversation. You know, so we've we're, I I call it that we're in the talking but not always walking stage right in terms of what it is that we're working on and that's that's progress and the the speed at which some people are not just walking but running is really starting to accelerate the rate that people who've only been talking and not walking are starting to walk and the rate that people who've been traditionally just walking a couple of ideas are now starting to really move more quickly and more aggressively now it, it, you, you still won't see the entire legal profession embracing every aspect of the change movement. And, and that's okay, because I think there will be a segment of the market that will still exist for law firms or for legal departments that operate in a more traditional mode. But I think I one thing that will be a common requirement is the client-centric focus that every practice is going to have to start developing, that people are going to have to connect whatever it is that they're doing and whatever it is they're delivering to what it is that clients want to buy because the market in which lawyers got to decide what they wanted to sell and sell it is done. It's done. Clients now have choices in the marketplace and it's not just choices within the law firm community or to build more people into their corporate legal department frankly i group legal departments and corporate legal departments i'm sorry law firms and corporate legal departments together in one group as far as where they are in their change adoption process and the people who are in other law companies or legal tech companies or the big 4 or the managed service providers of all different kinds in the group that's starting to run more quickly and it's it's going to be just as much a burden on legal departments as it is on law firms to start demonstrating greater alignment with client needs and expectations, because otherwise they're going to find out that the folks who you know worked with the CFO during tax season at Deloitte or KPMG or PwC or Ernst and Young and you know all the other you know I'm sorry EY I can't say it that way right you know all the other folks out there are suddenly you know um, eating their lunch because they're now also offering a whole line of legal service provision that previously was done by lawyers and law firms or legal departments. So I'm not, I'm, not at all, um, I'm not at all depressed that we haven't made more progress. What I think we're gonna see in the next couple of years is that acceleration continuing. And like I said, I think it's the question is, will, will the, the appetite for change in the legal community and the acceleration of this change outpace the the irrelevance that clients will will worry about in whether or not law firms and legal departments are providing what it is they need to solve their business problems since they don't have legal problems.
0: Right. And I, I know we're running out of time, yeah. but one last sort of question based on that. Do you think the last year the pandemic has has accelerated the change process you're talking about? And if so, do you think that accelerant is a sticky process?
1: I, you know, I really do think it has accelerated it, but not just because there is somehow a wild movement to remote work and the technologies necessary. What, what accelerates it is the, 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 the people were forced into the pool of having to try things they hadn't tried before. And guess what? No one died. You know, no one, no one lost clients. Indeed, a vast number of firms had a better year last year than they had ever. A large number of legal departments are more active and busy and growing than ever. While there are clearly folks who during the last year in the legal profession suffered all kinds of economic consequence, the result of having to go to remote meant that a lot of people had to try practicing in different ways than they were used to. And they found out that they were a little bit more resilient than they thought. So maybe when they come back, whether it's to their office environment or their or to reopenings, which will create hybrid environments, or they stay at home working, they'll be more likely to be willing to say, "Man, meh, what's the worst thing that can happen? We'll give, let's give that a try." There were things that I learned in this process that worked far more effectively or efficiently than before. There were things that were identified to me as gaps or problems in how we work, that I now have a new way of thinking about, right? And and that I'm now gonna look for better solutions and new ways to solve. So I think that it was an accelerant and I think it will be sticky. And I, I, I really hope that therefore for the future, people are more open because like I say, I think right now the only real impediment for most lawyers is not a lack of practices or a lack of resources or a lack of options. It's the behavioral issues that make it really hard. And there are legitimate reasons that it's really hard. But right. there are the behavioral reasons that make it really hard for people to say, I'm gonna stop doing what I've always done and try doing it in a different way, or even rethinking entirely how we should transform everything we do to do different stuff that's now more valuable to our clients. right.
0: Well, it's it'll be interesting to see, won't it?
1: I can't wait.
0: I can't either.
1: We'll hang out again and do this in the future and see how 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 good we were at predicting.
0: Absolutely, we'll we'll save this. Uh, we'll save the video as well. Very you uh, be, Before before we uh, conclude, you want to give us uh, just a couple of seconds, couple of minutes on the in-house focus series you're bringing out because it looks fascinating.
1: And, oh, this this new series, yeah, I'm really excited about this. Um, the 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 concept was to bring together groupings of CLOs for a conversation on an issue where the the topic of conversation wouldn't be legal. It wouldn't be, you know, how do you solve this legal problem, but it would be how is it that CLOs who are grappling with these kinds of very critical questions are in their own uh, discussions and in their own heads, trying to to focus on the future and how they'll they'll change the way that their departments are responding. They'll change the way they're leading within the company. They'll change the way they're working with other people, even outside of the of the legal team, to solve these kinds of problems. So, each month on the third Wednesday of the month, and you can check them all out at inhousefocus.com. Um, we're going to have a group of three, maybe four CLOs who are talking in a conversational way about topics like what does it take to step into the role of a GC, if you've never been in that role before? Or what is it that the role of the legal department and the GC is in promoting ESG and what are the kinds of things people are talking about internally as the, 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 the tactics that are, the tactics they'll, they'll deploy or the kinds of issues they're running into. Or we're talking about being a financial leader within the organization or learning how to more deeply uh, rely upon performance metrics to make decisions about how it is that the department should move forward. The stuff that folks talk about when they get in a room by themselves and chat right. about it internally. And so you'll get to watch, It's the, the registration is free for in-house counsel. So you know people can come and watch as they like, and I really hope people will tune in because bringing these groups together and getting the brain trust to talk about these kinds of issues and their leadership on them. It's going to be fascinating.
0: Well, I look forward to it. Uh, it's, it, should be, it should be really interesting. So good luck with that.
1: Well, thank you so much. And I appreciate talking to you. I, I wish you and the folks at SciFarth all the best. You've always been out in front of every one of the issues that I've been working on. and Whether you felt like you got it right or not, you were always at the head of the pack. So thank you Hopefully. and congrats to you on all the years that you've been leading this effort.
0: Thanks, Susan. Thanks so much for your time. It's been it's been great to catch back up with you. It has. You interested in following Susan on uh, Twitter? She's at she's at Hackett Inhouse. And thank you very much. Appreciate the time.
1: Thank you. Talk to you soon. Okay. Bye now.
0: Thanks for listening to Pioneers and Pathfinders. Be sure to visit thepioneerpodcast.com dot for show notes and more episodes. And don't forget to subscribe to our podcast on your favorite platform.